Throughout scripture, we find individuals and communities acknowledging their dependence on God. We need his mercy, his protection, his guidance, his deliverance. One of the ways God's people have expressed this dependence is through the discipline of fasting. This ancient practice reminds us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And so we look for the breakthrough that comes when God moves and speaks. good you got a bible if not reach in the seat back in front of you down below turn to acts 9 acts 9 Mine is not coming up here. Okay, I'm going to start things over again. Yeah, just turn to Acts 9. I'll, I'll try and talk and do... I can't do two things at once. Impossible for me. While you're turning there, <laughs> and things are coming back up, I hope, um, we're in a series on prayer and fasting, and I don't know if you've connected all the dots of the things we've been doing, but we're looking at various passages throughout the Bible where fasting is mentioned. We looked at uh, the disciples and their fast, where Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and says uh, to his disciples who were trying to cast a demon out of boy, this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. I know that's an addition to some um, scripture, but um, we, we believe that, that this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. And then we looked at how we need freedom because of that. We need the freedom of the Lord to, to come upon us. And some fasting is for freedom. Some fasting is to help people get free. Uh, we looked at, Gabriel looked at uh, the book of Ezra talking about fasting to to, to receive the blessing of God, the hand of God. Um, we looked at um, fasting for Elijah, who was going through depression. Sometimes we need fasting to help us overcome emotional challenges, emotional tribulation. And all of these kind of fasts are mentioned in the book of Isaiah, where he talks about a true fast. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to do what? Loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. We've been looking at some of these specific fasts that do these things in our lives. Cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke. goes on and says, is it not to share your food with hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn. 
there's this combination in, in Isaiah of both personal, corporate, national uh, ideas about fasting. We're doing it on behalf of others. We're doing it so that the glory of the Lord will shine forth. We're doing it because God is moving in our hearts and lives to, to touch uh, the world around us. Uh, I was listening to a book Dave gave me. It's the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. I was listening to it the other day. And one of the aspects that King would quote that wasn't original with him, but he would say, somebody somewhere said, which is, a, I don't know if that means he said it or somebody else said it, but he, he said this, uh, that religion or faith that ends with the individual ends. Too often we in our society, we think that the, our faith is just about us. And if our faith or religion is just about us, then that's the terminal point. It's over. That really faith has to do with God moving through us to touch the others, touch others um, in so many, so many different ways. And Isaiah is making it clear here that that's, that's the case. So we've been looking at these various fasts, and we're going to continue for another couple of weeks after this to look at a couple of others that have specific purposes in our lives. But today I want to look in Acts 9 at Saul and his conversion when he comes to know the Lord. Uh, this is a pivotal moment in church history. This is a pivotal moment, and many of you know the story of the conversion of Paul and what happened, but I want to look at it from the idea of fasting to move from one place to another place. And for God to move in our lives for decisions, for the light to break forth like the dawn in our lives. Um, we are overwhelmed with decisions today. You have more possible decisions to make than any people group in the history of humanity. And what um, has been learned over the last 20 plus years is that the multitude of decisions has actually made it where you can't make a decision. Because you're so overwhelmed with a number of decisions and possibilities, there's this thing called the decision paradox, which uh, scientists have studied really around, there's a book written around 2004 by that same title, but it started in the 90s to look at how, why is it that people and particularly, it started looking at Harvard studies about why can young adults not make a decision about a job, about a future, about a possibility. And part of that goes back to this truth. There are so many decisions to make. We're frozen by the possibility of making the wrong one. And as a result, we end up making no decision. I mean, it used to be, uh, here are your choices. Farmer, blacksmith shop owner, um, maybe you had three choices. So it's like, well, I don't want to do that. I'll do this. Now you've got hundreds, hundreds of choices, so much so that it's become difficult for us to make a decision. Have you, have you been to the cereal aisle? <laughs> Any guesses on how many cereals the average supermarket has these days? 250. 
250 different choices of cereal. Now, for me, it's either Raisin Bran or uh, Shredded Wheat. Uh, I got two choices. That's, that's the way I live my life. If I go to Baskin Robbins, it's Rocky Road. I don't worry about the decisions. I've made up my mind what I like. It doesn't matter if there are 100 choices. I'm going to get what I like. Go to Cheesecake Factory, 250 items on the menu. Go to Cheesecake Factory with Kathy, and we will read every single choice. And then we'll ask the waiter what their favorite is. Why? Because there's so many. What if I make the wrong decision? You've probably heard of the jam study. I've referenced it in illustrations before. The jam study where um, the, the same Harvard psychologists went into a grocery store. They set out 24 different flavors of jam, jelly. Jam, I guess, is a northern expression. Jelly, preserves, whatever. 24 different jellies. And they attracted a big crowd, and they were giving away a coupon to, for a discount. And then they went back, and they had only six choices of jam. Same thing. Attracted less people, but people were 10 times more likely to buy when all they had was six choices versus when they had 24. So many different decisions to make, they can't make a decision. And we're no different. We, we are frozen in our indecisiveness and our decisions. How are you going to make decisions? If you're a young adult here today, if you're a youth or college-age student, um, you, you have major decisions facing you future, job, spouse, where to live. I mean, it seems like the possibilities are endless. And, and, and the truth is this, you're going to be so frozen in your indecisiveness that a decision will be made for you, and it won't be the decision you probably need to make. So, because I tell my kids this all the time. Hey, if you just wait long enough, you don't have to decide. The decision will be made for you. Right? Hello? Are you with me? Well, here's my point. God wants, he's got, he's got a future, a plan, a destiny for you. He wants you to hear from him. He wants, you to, to, he wants to help you decide what you're going to do. But you've got to tune into him. You've got to figure out a way to separate out the 249 other choices on the cereal aisle so that you can hear from God. How do you do that? At some point, you've got to set some time aside to try and hear what he wants to say about you and about your life. And that's what this kind of fasting that we're talking about this morning. Now, so many different angles to the conversion of, of Saul and Paul, but I want you to kind of focus in on this. How do I make decisions? How, does, how do I hear from God in the decision-making process of my life? How can fasting and prayer help me do that. So I'm looking at this beautiful, complicated, event-changing, world-changing event from this one focus. So stay with me because I'm not hitting all the angles, though my temptation is to try. So I'm trying to get you out of here earlier than I've been getting you out of here lately because I've been preaching every passage all the way through. Anyway, here we go. Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. Maybe not. Hey, help me here. Go one more. 
See if I can do it once it gets off. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that, you're going to have to, I got nothing, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So you got, you know the story well. Saul, Pharisee, highly passionate, defending God. He believes that the disciples of the way are heretics. That the bottom line, he knows that they're heretics. He, he, not, he knows it, it all the way down through himself that they're heretics. So much so, so that he's become a persecutor of the church. He's gone to the high priest, and he's already begun doing this in Jerusalem. Going back to Acts 7, the first time we see Saul, we see it says, um, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's there when Stephen is stoned, when Stephen is killed. Stephen has preached his sermon. The, the religious, the Jews have gotten very angry. They stone him. Saul is there. He's a young man, and they lay their cloaks at his feet. First time we see them. And then um, the persecution rises up against the church. And Saul was there giving approval to his death, meaning Stephen at this point. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Here's a, a, a deal about Saul. He, 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 he may have been wrong, but he was not in doubt. He was very passionate about this. He was committed to this. He knew he was doing it. What he was doing was right. Why did he know it? Because his entire system of thinking, his entire way of being raised, everything inside of him said, this is heretical and I need to defend God. I'm going to stand up for God. He is strong in his pursuit. He's killing the church. He's persecuting the church, not because he's mean, not because he hates people, but because he loves God. Now, people, I, I really want you to kind of just notate this to yourself um, about Paul's reasoning here. He is not doing it because he hates people. He's doing it because he loves God, and he's believing that he's standing up on behalf of God. So he gets this, these letters. He, he's leaving now. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's heard there's some people of the way up in Damascus. And Damascus is some 140 miles. We, we think of distances. It's hard for us to think of distances. But Paul is so committed. He's willing to walk 140 miles up to Damascus with these letters in order to persecute the church there. He, he's, he's, he's got the ability to leave his own country and go to the neighboring one, he, to go around and to, to, to get after these. He's got We got to nip it in the bud, right? We got to kill this thing before it gets any bigger because it's already starting to spread outside of Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven 
flashed around him. So probably he's on his last day. Uh, it probably it probably takes, and it was about a seven-day journey, supposedly, from Jerusalem up to Damascus. You could travel about 20 miles a day. Uh, this really is, is for us, we, we, we're challenged if you think about this. We, we think, oh, he's going to walk 20 miles a day for seven days to get there. So, I mean, just think about um, going to Atlanta. Oh, we're going to go to Atlanta. Well, how, how, it's going to take you a week to walk there. Dang, that's if you're in decent shape, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, I'm going to walk 20 miles a day and get to Atlanta in about a week. No, I don't think we are. Light flashes around him, literally the light from heaven. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, you're going to see in just a second, Saul doesn't know who this is. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Who are you? He doesn't recognize this as Jesus. He does recognize whoever the voice is as God, Lord. But he's not sure what's going on. So the voice, the light, says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This is a life-impacting encounter, right? You're on your way to kill the church, to persecute the church. Light, voice, says, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Now, technically, this, this is, um, again, pivotal for our theology. You may not know it as such, but it really is. Because Jesus is saying, when you persecute the church, you persecute me. Saul is persecuting the church. But Jesus is saying, this is my body. We're going to come to the table later. This is not, we don't take this lightly. Because we are proclaiming that we are the body of Christ. We're agreeing. We're confessing. This is a visual confession that we are the body of Christ. We're taking the bread. We're taking the cup. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We who were many are now one. And this is a, this is a confession of that. Jesus says to Paul, to Saul, why are you persecuting me? By the way, this, this encounter, it is, Paul is never going to get over this. Never. He's never going to get over the truth that he persecuted Jesus. He's going to spend, in almost every letter he writes, he's going to say, I am the chief among sinners. Now, Saul was a good guy. He followed the law. He was a Pharisee. He was Jewish among Jews. You know, he was really high up and ranking and did everything he was supposed to do. But because he persecuted Jesus, the church, he sees himself as chief among sinners. He's told to get up and go into the city. Now, the men who were traveling with Saul, I'm going on in verse 7, the men who were traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. 
Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. I mean, you're going to see later, they heard, they heard the sound, but couldn't, it wasn't clear to them. They heard a sound, saw a light, but they, in other accounts, Paul's make it clear these guys couldn't hear what he could hear. It was specific for, for him. And when he gets up from the ground, he's blind. He has to be led into Damascus, which they do. They led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Here's the fasting part. He spends three days in his blind state, not eating or drinking anything. He's been led into the city, and that's where he is. I'm going to keep coming back to this because I don't want us to miss the import of this decision. What is taking place? Paul is not just saying, I'm going to come to know Jesus as the one who rules my life and forgives my sins, which is great, right? All of that is good. Paul is going from one system that has encompassed his entire life a system, a way of thinking about God, who God is, how God works. Paul is about to go from law to grace. He's about to go from um, trying to appease God to loving God and letting God work through. He's about to make a move that we can't even, we can't even comprehend the likes of for him. I mean, he was a big deal in Jewish faith. So much a big deal, he's getting letters from the high priest to go out into the world and persecute the church. I mean, he's representing Judaism around the world in what he does. And he's about to be transformed into the very system that he's coming against. The move is massive. A three-day prayer and fast doesn't even seem like it should be that big a deal. But I think there's so much symbolic here about the three days going from death to life, the resurrection, the death of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus, the death of the old Saul into the life of the new Paul. And he fasts and prays. And, because no matter what's happened with the light and the voice and a recognition of the Lord, Paul is going to have to receive what God is doing in his life. He could have stepped back and said, you know what, I'm going to, was, I was wrong. I'm not going to persecute the church any longer. And then just faded into the background, right? He could have said, hey, sorry, I screwed up. I won't do it anymore. I'll leave you alone. No, he's about to go from the most vocal opponent to the most vocal proponent. His transformation is radical, but he's going to have to make a decision. Am I going to do this? Am I going to make this move? And you're going to see, it's not going to take him long. I mean, it's not, this is so massive for Saul, who becomes Paul. But in the meantime, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. This is a guy we don't even know. We don't know this guy. We don't know who he is, but he's a believer. 
and he's in Damascus. He's there, and God calls him. God, God uses him. Ananias has a decision too. Am I going to listen to God? He recognizes the voice of God. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him and to restore his sight. Lord comes. Ananias answers. Lord says, go to this straight street. It's like saying, hey, go to Main Street in Tarsus. It's a, it's a big, it's clearly known. Go, there's a guy waiting from you, from Saul of Tarsus. He's had a vision. He's blind. Go lay hands on him so that he can receive his sight. Oh, yes, I'm going. Nope, nope, here's Ananias. Uh, Lord, I've heard about this dude. I know this guy. Many reports about this man and all the harm he has done, by the way, to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name, including me. I mean, I love this. I love this. If you see humor in the Bible, you'll find it here, right? Lord, are you sure? Are you sure about this? I know this dude. He is not a good dude. I don't know what you're up to. But this guy is not good, and I'm putting my life at risk. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how great he's going to be. I'll show him through you how awesome this is going to work. I'll show him what a great future he's got. No, I'm going to show him how much he's got to suffer for my name. So if you wondered if the decision of Paul to Saul, Saul to Paul, Jews to following Christ, is going to be one of greatness, I mean, it is, but it's a call to come and suffer. It's a call to come and follow me no matter what. Ananias is obedient, and he goes. Brother Saul, the Lord, and he wants to make it clear, Jesus has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to pray for Saul. And when he prays for him, the scales are going to fall off his eyes. He's going to see physically. He's going to see spiritually. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God is going to move radically on his life. So much so that the guy who came breathing threats and murderous intentions against the church is in a day or two going to stand in the streets in Damascus and begin to preach Jesus. He's going to move from one to another. Here's why I want to pause just for a second and just this morning's intent is this. You're facing constantly decisions in your life. You're, 
Maybe not at this same level, but maybe so. You're facing a lot of things that you need to decide about. How are you going to make? How, what are some truths that we can garner from some story like this that will help us as we navigate the days ahead? So first of all, some basic truths um, that I want you to see from the story. That, and one, we've talked about this a lot, but thinking you're doing the right thing may not be the same thing as actually doing the right thing. There's a lot of times that we think we're doing right, but we're not doing right. Right? I've talked about it before. The terrible thing about being deceived is you don't know you're deceived. You think you're doing the right thing. But what if you're not doing the right thing? Listen, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. This is critical for us in our faith. You are not actually the arbiter of what is true. Wait, wait a minute. No, no, no. You're not the one who gets to say, this is truth. Where does truth come from? Truth comes from outside of you. It comes from what God says is true. If we believe in a creator who is the one who made the universe, if we believe in a redeemer who's changed our hearts, who, who, who has bought us back with a price, if we believe in a sustainer, the one who maintains everything by his powerful word, he is the one who gets to define truth. He defines what is right. He defines what is wrong. He, he defines what humanity is. He defines what male is. He defines what female is. He defines what marriage is. He defines what uh, is right or wrong in his sight. I, I, I'm sorry. I know I'm an old guy, but you don't get to. The bottom line is he defines what's truth. And we have the choice to either walk out his truth or make up our own. And let me say this. Truth made up is not truth. You can call it whatever you want, but it's not truth. Because truth is what God says it is. Now, this is where um, the church, I don't think it's done a great job over, it doesn't mean you get to be mean. It doesn't mean you get to be ugly. But there, is, there should be an unapologetic stand where you say, you know what, I love people. And I'm so broken by the hurt in this world at so many different levels. This truth that I'm speaking is not my truth. It's God's truth. And I stand on God's truth. Now again, Paul is going to make a major move from saying, hey, here's, what, here's me standing on behalf of God, but missing God, to actually standing with the grace of God but doing it in a way that boldly proclaims Jesus. Now, unfortunately, the church looks more like this sometimes, breathing threats and insults against the world, rather than standing in the grace of God and saying, God is the one who gives truth. Come to him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And let him transform who we are. This is going to get no easier in the days ahead. I wish I could say, you know what? We've reached a pinnacle where things are about as bad as they're going to get. Nope, no, nope. I think it's going to get a lot worse. So, but you've got a choice. 
How do I stand in truth and love at the same time? How do I stand in the grace of God and yet proclaim the truth of God without compromising? Here's the thing. We can think we'll be doing right and not be doing right. Paul could not have been more passionate. He could not have been more sincerely wrong. You can be very sincere and be wrong at the same time. And this is where much of the world stands today. This is where much of the church at times stands. All of it, it, everything that is within me is sincere about this. I believe this to the very core of my being. You can be, you can be sincerely wrong. Here, here's my thing. I know this because I've done this. Hello? I, I can tell, I, I, I'm embarrassed to go back at times and look at my life and tell you places where I have been passionate and sincere and wrong. Mistaken. Call it what you want. Error in judgment. Wrong is the right word. But I've been very sincere about it. And just because you do a fast doesn't guarantee that you'll make the right decision. I just want to throw this in. It'll kind of like, oh, if you fast and pray, you'll make the right decision. Yeah. It'll put you on a path where you can hear from God, but there are no guarantees in this. You're like, well, what good is it? Well, it's better than being, at least you're in a position to hear from God and sincerely go after him and try and, I want to I join God in his purposes on the earth. I want to I hear his truth. I want to walk out that truth. Because I would rather be on the right path, even if it's the narrow one. It's not the well-traveled one. It's not the popular one. That's the one I want to be on versus the wrong one that leads to destruction. All right, there's some basic truth. So how do we experience breakthrough in these areas? How are we going to try and help our, ourselves make a decision? And I, I want to get a little practical, so just hang with me. First is this. First, um, listen. Make time to listen to what God is trying to say in your life. Could it be that we're not doing this because we're not setting aside time? God, God speaks through his word. He speaks through other believers. He speaks through circumstances. God, we believe in a God who still speaks, amen? Right? We, we believe in a God who has not gone silent. But one of our challenges is, when is he going to talk to us in the midst of all of the noise of our lives? How are we going to hear from him? This is what prayer and fasting does for us. It sets us aside so that we can try and hear what God is speaking to us. Again, a couple of presuppositions here. One, that we believe in a God who still speaks. If you believe in a God who no longer speaks, then you will not set aside a time to listen. You'll figure out a way that God did speak, and all I get is the option of hearing how God used to talk, but without trying to hear what is he actually saying to me today. Life is busy. Life is fast, and if you don't slow down, I, I, I'm the worst at this. I, I don't even, I, I'm embarrassed to even preach this point 
on slow your life down and listen to God. You know, if I were taking my grandkids back to Atlanta today, I guarantee I'm going 10 miles, uh, nine miles over the speed limit. <laughs> Why? Because I got I to get there. I got to get there as fast as I can. I got to keep on moving. And, and most, many of you are like that. You're, you're, you're already contemplating how long do I have to sit here and listen to him go on versus how quick can I leave? Can I leave before communion? Can I leave at communion? Can I leave when they start the song? Can I leave? Why? Because I'm so dang busy, I got to get to the next thing. Rather than slowing down just a moment and saying, God, what do you want to speak into my life today? Do you know in that moment when you slow your life down and listen, it could be the change that you've needed for everything. But if you rush off to the next thing because you have no margin in your life, when will God speak? How is he going to speak to you? And what does his voice sound like? Take a second and listen. Set aside time. Recognize, again, recognize that there is an objective truth. And we need to recognize the truth and examine the truth and examine our lives in perspective to this truth. Okay, let me see. I've said this already, and I'm not going to hammer it home too much more. Most of us, we recognize our lives and measure truth against our life. Let me say it again. Many of you are sitting here and saying, here's what I feel. Here's what I sense. Here's, I'm going to measure truth against me. And I would say, no, what you need to do is to measure yourself against truth. Truth is the standard, not you. And what are you going to measure in your life? How are you going to measure this truth? So you need to recognize, if you're going to make the right decision, that there is an objective truth. It's not subjective. It's not how you feel about you. It's about how God speaks about you. Recognize it. I mean, for instance, I'll just throw one out there. If you're, if you're always broke because you spend more money than you make, you have no budget in your life, you don't handle your resources in a way that honors God, and you're always broke, there, there are some choices here. You can say, you know what? Here's the problem. The problem is they're, take, they're stealing my money. They're taking my money. Things are coming against me. I, I'm just a victim of this. I'm a victim of this because I can't afford this apartment. I can't afford this car. I can't afford this house. But I deserve it because look at me. I'm wonderful. And I deserve the best, right? Don't you deserve the best? The objective truth, though, is this. If you spend more money than you make, you're going to be in debt to others. Debt, by the way, debt is selling your future. Debt is saying this, I want this item now, but I'm going to trade my future for it. Because now I can't really hear from God because I'm obligated to the one who actually owns this car, to the one who actually owns this house, the one who actually owns that refrigerator or whatever, the, the, the debt I've taken out because I've mortgaged my future in order to get it. 
Look, at some point, why not recognize there are biblical principles about finance? And if you want to walk in freedom, walk in biblical principles about what God has a lot to say about money. See, I think as soon as I start talking about subject, objective truth and stuff, you start thinking about sexuality, maybe. But there are a lot of other objective truths that we as Americans have traded for where we stand now based on my American truth. I can get in as much debt as I want because I deserve this stuff. Every commercial in that football game told me I deserve it and I would look good in it. And if I want to be somebody and have some meaning in my life, then I have to obtain it. Who cares if I don't have the money for it? Don't give me it. And then I'll pay it off later. And then what would happen if God said, hey, here's the decision. Light from heaven strikes you on the way to Walmart and says to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go here. You can't. Why? Because your future has been mortgaged. It's owned by another. God says you can't serve two masters. Okay, I know I'm nailing this a bunch. But what I want you to do is to recognize that there is an objective truth. And you either get to choose, you choose to make the decision to walk according to the truth that God places in your life or to go your own way. Next point is this, you need to yield. You need to yield yourself. By that I mean give yourself. Paul recognizes the lordship of Jesus and decides to go with it. And just Here's a list of things, and just scribble them down. I'm not going to take time. I'm not going to go on with these very long. Submit your heart, your life. Submit yourself. Paul fasted while he waited. What was he waiting on? I don't think he even knew, but God said, Ananias is going to come and pray for you. Yield yourself. Submit yourself. Search. Ask God to search you. You will seek me and find me. When what? You search for him with all your heart. Try and find the purpose and plan of God for your life. Allow the spirit to fill you up. The spirit of wisdom to fill your life. Study God's word. Study what he says about the truths of life. And pray. Seek after him. It's, there are ways you can yield yourself in order to, for God to help you with these decisions. All right. Then, obey. Now, this could be the hardest one. I mean, really, at some point, you actually have to get your butt off of the couch and go do what God tells you to do. You know, Pastor, that's pretty graphic. No, no, it's actually very true. You have to do what he tells you to do at some point. To obey him. I mean, Paul is, he is about to, he is about Ananias had to obey, right? I mean, there's a lot of obedience going here for all of God's purposes and plans to be accomplished. Then prepare and remain patient. Our church is about to celebrate 30 years of being a church, and I'm going to revisit over the days ahead some old stories about how we got to where we are. A couple of them just for this morning, that I think are help with these decisions. And they're old stories. Some of you have heard them. Some of you haven't before. But I thought it'd be good to revisit some of our history. Kathy and I got married, as you know, 
and we had our first little boy. We were living in Dallas and Fort Worth. A church from Birmingham calls me to interview me about coming to be their minister of music at Vestavia Hills Baptist Church. And my first response was, no, I'm not interested at all. Because my entire life had up until this moment been preparing to teach in a college or university. I don't even know how they got my name. I don't know how they got my resume. I had only released it to colleges and universities. I was interviewing at different places around the country to go um, teach music theory uh, in, in schools. And so I love music theory. I still do. Most people hate it who are in music. But I loved it. Um, I loved teaching. And so I was teaching music theory at Southwestern Seminary, interviewing colleges, universities. This church calls me and says, we would like to interview you to be minister of music. And my first response after much deliberation and prayer was, <laughs> was, no, I'm not interested. I didn't even have to seek God. This is not my plan for my life to go into church. Listen, my dad was a pastor. My brother at the time was on staff at a church. I had worked in churches my entire life. I knew what that path held. And I just knew it wasn't for me. This is not what I wanted or desired. About a month later, they call me again. Same church. Calls me again. Says, hey, listen, we, um, we're coming out to interview some other people. And we're wondering, would you sit down with us and help us kind of navigate what kind of person we're looking for? To which I said, sure, I'm a dang genius. I'll sit down with you and help you figure out what it is that, what it is that you're looking for. I go and interview with them and talk to them because, again, I am not, it's not happening. Kathy was away that weekend. I can't even remember where she was. She had gone away with some girlfriends or something. and um, So I went and interviewed with the senior pastor and the head of the committee, talked to them at dinner, and um, I came home, and it was the first time where I was like, do you know, maybe I should, maybe I should pray about this. There was something... It had nothing to do with the being on church staff. It had nothing to do with them. It, had, it was the first time where I just stepped back, and it was really on the drive home where I was quiet enough to say, God, what do you want from my life? What do you, what do you want? Kathy came home that weekend. I said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but I think we should actually pray and fast about this decision. She said, what decision? <laughs> about whether to take this church in Birmingham. And she was like, are you kidding me? Birmingham, I've driven through there. I don't want to live there. It is ugly. The people, I've seen the, I've seen the news. We're both like Birmingham. If you're not from Birmingham, your view of Birmingham is not very positive. I just thought I'd let you know. For those of you who haven't lived here your whole lives and you moved here, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, man, that racism and that, you know, the, just the steel stuff. And just, it was, uh, it's ugly. Crime and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, <clears throat> we started praying and fasting about it. I had a dream. I mean, one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life. Where I was at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. And I had an armful of books. 
that I was carrying at the terminal. And they called for my flight for Birmingham. And I'm going to get on the plane, and I keep dropping books as I'm trying to get on the plane. And I, I was picking, trying to get the books back in my, that frustration dream. Have you all ever had those frustration dreams, you know, where you're trying to pick up the books and get on the plane and get there? And, and it occurred to me I could either drop the books and get on the plane or be fighting against the books for eternity, it seemed like. And in my dream, I dropped the books and got on the plane. I woke up the next day to Kathy and said, hey, I think we're moving to Birmingham. We'd never been here. We never, I hadn't talked to the other church again. I said, I've had this dream, and I think God is saying to us, this is what we're supposed to do. Now, for me, this is a life-changing moment. It's to, it, there, there's, you know how the, the roads diverged. I could take the one less traveled. Thank you, Robert Frost. You know, I could take the, this one or this one. I had a choice. God was giving me the choice, I think of which road to go down. But it was clear to me in that dream what, what his choice for my life was. You know, if God had woken me up in the middle of the night and said, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to move to Birmingham. You're going to be on staff at this church. It's going to be horrible for two years. And then you're going to start a church and pastor a church for 30 years in Birmingham that's my path for your life, I would have said, no chance. No way I'm going to do that. But God showed me just the next step and gave me a choice to say, are you going to do this or not going to do this? Obviously, what? spoiler, uh, we, <laughs> we came to Birmingham. But time after time, God was there speaking to me. When we thought about two years later when God was starting to speak to us about starting a church here in Birmingham. Now by, by this time God had assembled a team so that it wasn't just me. It was Larry and Jan and Chris and Wendy and John and Gwen um, and it was um, the Stricklands and a couple by the name of the Bishops. Um, that God had brought together to think about starting this church. So I went away again and fasted and prayed about starting whether we should start fullness or not. I mean, I, people, when I say I had only preached one sermon, I'm not lying. I had only preached one sermon. Now, I preached it a number of times, but I only had one sermon, which means that after week one, I was done with my entire repertoire of sermon prep. If you want to know that sermon, I'll share with you later. <laughs> One sermon that I had ever done. The fact of me being a preacher, the pastor, even the people on the team were saying, okay, we'll get it started, but who's going to pastor this? I thought I would do it for a while. Really? You? I mean, you're a good singer and good musician and friend of mine heard that we were going to start Fullness from out of town. Former roommate, musician, called me and said, hey, I've heard in the wind that you're thinking about leaving that church, that good church, and starting a church. Is this true? I said, yes, it's true. And they were like, don't do it. 
do not do it. You will be burning all of your bridges in the academic Baptist world if you start the kind of church you're talking about starting. You know what? God gave me an incredible peace in the middle of it. To say, no, I know I, this is the right thing. You know what? He was right. I did burn all of my bridges. <laughs> there was no going back. Once we started, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, you know, I'll stay here a year or two and I'll go back and do what I was. I meant, no, there was no option. It was forward. You know, that whole burn the boats illustration kind of thing, you're not going back. But it never. Why? Because in the middle of it, when you know that you've heard from God, when you know that the decisions you're making are in line, you don't know what the future holds. You don't, you don't get to see the end picture. All you get to see is the next step. And the decision is, am I going to follow God in this next step? And then I'll get shown the step after that, and then the step after that. And you, church, are the 30 years of steps that came as a result of God's work, not only in my life, but in the lives. I mean, the stories of miracles of how Chris and Wendy ended up here, or how the Drews ended up here, or other stories in this room of how that you ended up in Birmingham to team up together to pastor this church for 30 years, because this is not my church. This is Jesus' church. This is God's place. And he's brought this team together. Two weeks ago, I was talking on the phone. I'm almost done. I said I wasn't going to preach long. I'm sorry. Um, two weeks ago, I was talking to a friend on, a on the phone, and I was talking about just how awesome our staff is. Just how incredible it is that God has brought this team of our staff together. And just how much fun I'm having, and just of all the years of pastoring fullness, these, these are the salad days, so to speak. These are the, those of you, thanks, Craig. Uh, these are the days. These are good times. I, I love what's going on in our church. I love our, and, and they were saying to me, how did you, how did you bring this staff together? Like I did, like it was, it was me who did it. Which I boldly said, no, it was God who brought it together. No, I said, I said this in jest. I said, good decisions. And they were like, well, how did you make such good decisions? I said, bad decisions. <laughs> Tons of bad decisions. I'm poking fun at the staff we've had before. That's not the point. But I've made a lot of bad decisions over the years. And the only way to learn is by making at least making a decision. If you're frozen today, a decision will be made for you, and it's not your decision. You need to start hearing from God and stepping out in faith. And you, here's the danger. You want the end of the story before you take the first step. My experience in life is, I'm sorry, you don't get it. You don't get the end picture. What you get is the clear God gave me a vision when we started Fullness. And again, I, I'm, this is going to happen over the next, I'm in a very reflective mood as we hit 30 years. I remember I where I was sitting, I was, in, um, I was in a room praying about starting Fullness, and there was a picture there 
of a fence that went into the fog. I mean, it was a painting. And you only saw like a fence post and then a foggy fence post and then no fence post. But you know the fence went on into the fog. And I heard God speak to me saying, just go to the next fence post. And then I'll show you the next one. And then I'll show you the next one. I don't know where the fence is going to end up, but if you'll follow me, I'll show you the next fence post. For many of you, you're sitting here today saying, I don't know what to do. Hey, go to the next fence post. Go to the next one. And God will make it clear from there where you should go. Don't be frozen in your indecision. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and he wants to reveal it to you. If you but set us some time to listen, recognize he's got a truth for, your, for, for all of us together, yield our lives to him, obey what he tells us, prepare. And when God moves, ride the wave. Lord, we thank you today for your plans, your purposes for our lives. I pray for people who are here today who need the decision. They've got decisions to make. They've got really important things that they're trying to decide upon. And I pray that spirit of wisdom, you would speak to them. I pray that as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, that the table of your presence, it would be an acknowledgement that you are the one who, whose body was broken for us so that we who were many are now one. That your blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That because of this, we are new creations. We're new creatures. We have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of wisdom. And as we come to the table today, Lord, I pray that you will speak to those who are trying to determine your plans, your purposes for their lives. God, this is not some religious ritual we want to just kind of go through and get out of the way. But instead, Lord, we desire to meet you here. That together, as we take these elements, that you're going to move among us. Your presence is here. And you're going to do miraculous things in our lives today. just sense right now that there's some of you here today that right now the Spirit of God is just moving on your heart in a very specific way. You've been crying out to him about decisions that you need to make. And God is speaking to you. And maybe he's just showing you the next step. But he's calling you to be obedient in that. And as you come to the table of the Lord this morning, I want to encourage you to submit your life to him in every way. Submit what you think about who you are and what he has for you.